everyone, Kirk here with another classic Strong Songs episode. This one, a doubleheader that I made a couple of years ago about Fleetwood Mac and their songs The Chain and Dreams. I was actually recently on the island of Maui and I visited Mick Fleetwood's restaurant there. I did not know he had a restaurant there, but he does. It was pretty good. He apparently takes wine very seriously. They had a really impressive wine list. Um, there were drums all over the place in the restaurant, uh, which was fun to see. And yeah, the food was pretty good. Being there made me think about this episode, but really, most things make me think about this episode since I'm always either listening to rumors or hearing someone talk about rumors or otherwise just, you know, thinking about rumors. I'm nearing the end of my break. If you're listening to this, I am actually in Sydney, Australia uh, on the day that this comes out. I'm getting ready to do a live show with my friends at the Chat 10 Looks 3 podcast. I'm very excited the show is sold out, uh, unfortunately for anyone who wanted to attend, but there is a live stream so you can follow along online if you want. And I hope that some of you out there are going to watch. I know I've heard from some people who are coming to the show, uh, which is just very exciting. I've never been to Sydney before and I'm very excited to go. I am probably exceedingly jet lagged right now, but hopefully I'm recovering and the adrenaline will kick in when I get on stage and I won't be an incoherent mess. At any rate, I'm excited to get back to making regular episodes of the show. That'll start in July. I'll be back to making full episodes of the show. I know the first song I'm going to be covering. It's going to be cool. And uh, I've got a bunch of fun stuff planned for the rest of the year. Thank you so much to all of my patrons for supporting Strong Songs and for supporting me as I try to find a sustainable way to make it. This show is a totally one-man operation. I do everything myself. That is a lot of work, and I'm really trying not to burn myself out. So if you want to support the creation of Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more. And there's also a link for one-time donations in the show notes. Okay, that's enough preamble. There is a lot of great music to get through on this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this analysis of The Chain and Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. A volume pedal is a pedal that you work with your foot that allows you to control the volume of the incoming signal. Volume pedals are commonly used by guitar players, but keyboard players also use them as well as other instruments, and they allow for a surprising amount of expressivity in your playing. For that reason, volume pedals and other pedals in that kind of family are what's known as expression pedals, and they really do help you express yourself. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played with wah pedals, music played with volume pedals, and music played with all sorts of other expression pedals. We're going to be talking about some very expressive guitar playing on this episode, and I'm excited to get into it. So find a comfortable place to sit, turn up the volume, and enjoy the show. 
The first instrument that I really played was the saxophone, and so I didn't really learn what volume pedals were for a long time. Saxophone and other wind instruments, you kind of have the volume pedal built into yourself, and that's why wind instruments are so wonderfully expressive, because you can play really quiet and really loudly, and you can kind of adjust that in so many different ways, because you've got the power of your breath behind you. When I first started messing with a volume pedal on the guitar, once I kind of had enough guitar chops to be able to play something to, you know, use the pedal, I was really surprised at how much you can do with the volume pedal and then how retroactively I was realizing how many of the kind of iconic guitar solos and sounds that I knew were defined by the volume pedal. It was a sound that I knew, especially the sound of the basically attackless guitar note where you attack the note with the volume down and then you swell the volume pedal in so that the note comes in with no pick and no attack. I knew that sound really well, but I just never thought about how guitar players were getting it. And once I was able to do it for myself, it made this whole world open up to me, oh, this is a whole new texture for the guitar that a lot of people have used really well. So welcome back to the show. I'm so glad as always that you're here and it's been really nice to hear from all of you who've been discovering this show for the first time and enjoying it enough to let me know. As always, you can write me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can also find me on social media at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton on Twitter and at Kirk underscore Hamilton on Instagram. I've actually been posting more musical stuff like musical performances, videos, looping, synths and stuff to social media because that feels like a pretty good use of social media right now. And also I've been learning a lot of new instruments and putting together a whole loop station. So that's been a lot of fun. And if you want to see more of that, uh, find me on either Twitter or Instagram. Thanks, too, to everyone who's been telling other people about this show. I've heard from a doctor who's telling her patients about the show. I've heard from several musicians who are telling their private students about it, teachers who tell their classes about it. That rules, and it means a lot to me that some of you like this show enough that you would tell other people about it. Strong Songs is listener-supported in every sense of the phrase. I only get new listeners because my current listeners spread the word, and I'm only able to afford to put the work in and to spend the time doing this because I am supported by my Patreon supporters, so huge thanks to to them as well. I don't do exclusive episodes of the show for people who pay to support the show over on Patreon. I know a lot of people do, and I understand why they do that, but I actually don't. I like everyone to have access to every single episode of Strong Songs. I do, though, sometimes over on Patreon, I'll make videos kind of answering questions about how I make the show and behind-the-scenes stuff, and actually just put a second one of those out for patrons, which was pretty cool. So if you're interested in watching that video, it's got some cool mood lighting. I play some sax, some flute, a little synthesizer. It's kind of a good time. Uh, head on over to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more about how to help me make this show. One last thing, I want to answer a question that I get a fair amount from teachers. I know that a lot of teachers are either getting ready for the school year or have already begun their school year, and a lot of people are doing remote learning, which is super challenging, especially for music teachers, and I've heard from a few people who have asked if they can use strong songs in their curriculum somehow. And just to answer that question, yes, you can use strong songs however you want, chop it up, you know, use excerpts, send it out to your students, whatever you want to do. If there's anything this show can do to help you teach music in this extremely difficult circumstance, then by all means, go ahead and use it. All right, let's get into it. This episode, we're going to be talking about a band. And I've talked about bands before on Strong Songs, and the thing about bands is they're defined by a collective sound. It's not just one person, even if there is one visionary songwriter behind the band, the band themselves are still responsible for the way the music is played. 
This band has one of the most distinctive sounds of any band. It's a combination of the singers, the instruments, the arrangements, and the songs that, when taken together, create an unmistakable sound. So what begins with just a kick drum and an acoustic guitar driving together can set up a gradual build into one of the most distinctive classic rock songs ever recorded. On this episode of Strong Songs, we're going to be talking about Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, and Christine and John McVie, better known as Fleetwood Mac, and their 1977 group sing gut rocker, The Chain. Chain is one of those unstoppably good songs that's become a part of the public consciousness just because of how ridiculously good it is. And while it's certainly one of the defining songs of 1977's Rumors, it's far from the only strong song on that album. In fact, I don't think that I can limit myself to just talking about one song off of Rumors on this episode. I've listened to the album so many times while getting ready to make this episode, and there's just this other groove that I can't get out of my head. Maybe you're like me and you can't get it out of your head either. You close your eyes at night and there it is, gently ping-ponging back and forth between your ears. Well, you know what? This is my podcast, and I make the rules, and nowhere is it written that I have to stick to one song for each episode. It's a rule I've broken in the past, and it's one that I will happily break now. Fleetwood Mac, a band that contains multitudes, demands that I do an episode that focuses on more than one song, so that's just what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about The Chain, an unusually collaborative song that resulted from input from all of the members of the band, and then we're going to talk about another of my favorite Fleetwood Mac songs off of the same album, Stevie steadily pumping heartbeat anthem, Dreams. Released in 1977, Rumors is one of those magic albums where almost every song is just a total knockdown, dragout classic. It's pretty wild. Like I said, I've been listening to it a lot while I work on this episode, and I'd say there are 11 songs in this album, and 9 of those 11 songs are songs that everyone knows, like ubiquitous classics that have totally transcended the era and become fixtures of American music. The story behind the creation of the album is pretty wild on its own. It was a very tumultuous time for this iteration of Fleet with Mac, which of course had existed in various other permutations, but I think that the Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, and Christine and John McVie lineup, like that quintet, that's the Fleetwood Mac that I know, that's the one that I grew up with because I grew up listening to Rumors, their self-titled album that came before this, and Tusk, which came after. Those are the three that I'm most familiar with, but there is actually a lot of pretty cool Fleetwood Mac with different personnel going back a little ways, so if you really want to get into Fleetwood Mac, and this is maybe, you know, you know some of these songs, but you haven't really 
listen to them, it's pretty fun to listen to them from the beginning and to read the stories that go along with that as the personnel shifted, new members joined, old members departed, the sound changed. And that, I think, is what makes Fleetwood Mac such a quintessential band to me. Like, the thing about a band is that the band will always make the music a little bit different than it was when it walked in the door. All great bands do this. That collaboration is sort of that magic, the music that we make together. And a band like Fleetwood Mac is interesting because their personnel changed so many times over the years, you can really get a feel for that. I think that the two songs that I picked for this episode, The Chain and Dreams, are both emblematic of the way that Fleetwood Mac as an ensemble would change a song and turn it into something more, something greater than it was when it came in, in very different ways. And that's one of the reasons that I'm excited to talk about both of them. All right, so we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get right into it, starting with The Chain. The Chain is actually credited to the entire band, to all five members of the band, and it was created in a kind of an unusual way. This album was produced by Ken Calais and Richard Deschutes, and by the telling, this was actually kind of assembled from various things the band had recorded at different times. So it wasn't some singular vision, it was a truly collaborative song. The groove on this is so nasty. I mean, this sound, this this feel is just so central to what makes the chain work. So before any lyrics come in, before anybody sings, this song has already made itself known, and that's largely because of the guitar part that Lindsey Buckingham is laying down, as well as Mick Fleetwood's right foot. So on Strong Songs, I talk a lot about thump and pop and sizzle, those being the three elements of most grooves, at least in popular music. The thump is that kick drum down low, the pop is the snare drum or hand clap, something like that that kind of bounces off of the lower thump, and the sizzle is a cymbal, maybe some kind of shaker or tambourine, something that moves quicker and subdivides the beat and sort of fills in the spaces in between them. The chain is all thump, baby, at least at first. It is just thump. That's Mick Fleetwood on the drum just slamming it with his kick drum, and they've brought it way up in the mix, so it is very, very present. So that's called four on the floor because it goes one, two, three, four. Steady quarter notes in the kick. Four quarter notes in a bar, and the kick drum is on the floor. Meanwhile, Buckingham is playing that acoustic guitar part on the left channel, and he's overdubbing himself on electric guitar over on the right. The acoustic guitar riff, though, that's really the defining sound of this song. So we're in the key of E. This is all just a bunch of really classic E blues stuff that Buckingham is playing. Now you might think that because he's in the key of E, he's using a lot of open strings, since E is kind of a good key for the guitar, but actually I'm pretty sure that he's playing with the capo up on the second fret. Now to anyone who doesn't play guitar, a capo is basically a thing that lays across the fretboard and it's kind of spring-loaded, so it presses the strings down and in effect it shortens the neck, which lets you play open string fingerings in different keys. So each fret that you move up raises the key of the guitar by a half step. So when you're playing totally open in a standard tuned guitar, you, you do have a lot of E's, you know, the first and sixth string are both E's, but if you put the capo on the second fret that moves everything up by a whole step, Everything that you would play in the key of D without the capo on is in the key of E, so there's actually a lot of E stuff that you can do with the capo on the second fret. 
That's extra true if you play with a guitar tuned in drop D, which I'm pretty sure is what Buckingham is doing. That just means you take the lowest string, the sixth string, and you lower it from a low E down to a low D. Then when you put the capo on the second fret, it turns a drop D guitar into a drop E guitar. And when the tune is in E like the chain is, it gives you a lot of really great sense. I mean, you've got that low, big power chord with that low E down on the bottom. And it makes a lot of the riffs that Buckingham is doing sound the way that they do. Now that's not the only distinctive thing about his sound, he's also playing not a regular acoustic guitar, but a resonator acoustic guitar, which is also known as a dobro, and you've probably seen one, it's one of those acoustic guitars, it looks like an acoustic guitar, but it is just covered in metal, there's just metal all over the front of the guitar, and that's what makes it a resonator guitar, it gives it a sharper sound, and a kind of twangy sound, it turns up a lot in bluegrass and other American folk music, and that's what's giving Buckingham that sound, that kind of sharper sound that he's getting. And there's one more instrument that sneaks in before the vocals, and that's Christine McVie's organ. I love that organ sound as McVie kind of sneaks in. It's still that kind of ominous build, and I love how Buckingham pops it on his strings there at the end of the phrase. He does that a bunch of times through the song, and with the reverb there, it just gets it this great sound. All right, time for the verse. So like I said, we're in the key of E, and this verse follows a very simple chord progression. There aren't a ton of chords in this song, but I do like how it moves through them. So we start in an E tonality, just kind of on that E, really big open chord. Then it goes up to an A, that's the first major chord change, and Strong Songs listeners will know that an E to an A, the 1 to the 4 chord, is also the first two chords in a blues. It's kind of the most common chord progression in American music, and the chain is a very blues-inspired song. It's not exactly a blues in terms of form, but it's definitely a blues in terms of style. So after that A chord, it kind of goes up to a D, then down to a C. I really like that chord progression, so it's the flat seven to the flat sixth. And then there's just kind of a riff that I guess it sort of sounds like it's going to a G, the minor third, back down to E, but it goes so quickly. I mean, it just jumps right down to E via the G. And those are the chords for the verse. So listen to the verse again, and I'll kind of call out those chords as we go through them, just so you can kind of hear how the harmony is moving. So here we're in E, that's A, then we go to D, to C, back to E. And that's it. It's not a very harmonically complex verse, it's just a very cool verse. It all hinges on those guitar riffs and, of course, on those vocal harmonies. Now this is four singers singing in what I'm hearing as three-part harmony, at least most of the time it's three-part harmony. Sometimes it sounds like it goes to two. Everybody is singing except for John McVie, the bass player, and it's arranged in a pretty classic way. So the bottom part is a male part singing a D to an E. That's a really cool place in the male register. I'm pretty sure that's Buckingham there. That kind of comes to the front. That's the bottom part. The middle part actually really comes out because I think that Stevie is singing this part. And this is just a G to an A, and it really kind of rings out in the mix. So when you put those two together, you just get this nice big open fourth. And then the singer on top is using a kind of a more blendy sound. It's a B to a C sharp, which is leading to that third on the A chord. 
that top note really ties the room together. And when you put the three together, you get a very clear movement just in the vocals of an E minor chord going up to an A. Then on the way down, I'm pretty sure that they condense down to two voices and the middle voice joins the upper voices and then they walk down that figure together. That final descending line is really nice. They're kind of arranged in sixths, which is a pretty big interval and it gives it, again, that nice big sound. Second phrase is basically the same. I'll play along with the upper harmonies. Then it's time for the chorus. What a chorus. That chorus stomps forward. It's just like this monstrous stomp of a chorus. And that is for a musical reason. There are a number of things that the band is doing to give it that feeling. First of all, there's just the fact that the bass has now come in. There was no bass in this song up until the chorus, which gives it a feeling of just this big new element comes in that adds a lot of excitement and energy to the mix. McVie is just playing these steady, just stomping quarter notes down on an A, and he's actually joined by Mick Fleetwood, who is the other big part of what gives this that kind of stomping energy. He's playing snare and kick hits on the downbeats, just right on quarter notes, which again is kind of, it defies the thump-pop-sizzle-groove breakdown that I normally do. There is a thump and a pop and a sizzle, but the thump and the pop are just kind of hitting together, and he's hitting the snare drum on downbeats along with the bass, which gives it that kind of heavy King Kong's stomp. And like I said, there is a sizzle and Fleetwood is playing the hi-hat, which is pretty low in the mix, but there's a much more prominent sizzle that I believe Fleetwood recorded in an overdub, and that is the tambourine, which on the very first episode when I talked about thump and pop and sizzle back talking about Janelle Monet's tightrope, that song also had a tambourine filling in the sizzle. Tambourine is very good for sizzle, and it's a big part of the sound of the groove on the chorus to the chain. Man, just a quick note about tambourine. Tambourine is an incredible instrument and such a flexible one. It's also really important and difficult to play right. I've seen a lot of bands where they'll just kind of throw a tambourine to someone who isn't doing something else. People just pick up a tambourine and start hitting it. But the tambourine cuts, man. The tambourine is louder than almost anything else on stage. And you've got to really have it locked in if you want to contribute to the groove. And I mean, the tambourine really contributes to the groove here. Even just recording that tambourine part, there are so many different ways you can play the tambourine like if you shake your wrist kind of loosely it's this big open really overwhelming sound to get the sound that they're getting on the chain you have to i had to kind of move my hand really stiffly to get it to lock down to get the zills to kind of lock down tight at the end of each hit which is its own whole technique and each time i sit down with the tambourine i'm struck by how many different ways there are to play it and i've seen videos of people who are incredible at tambourine i mean you can be super super virtuosically good at the tambourine just like you can at any instrument. So to people who think that the tambourine is just something that you kind of whip out and start hitting on stage, no, it's really important, and the chorus to the chain bears that out. So to keep building this groove from the bottom up, we've got the bass, we've got the drums, and the tambourine. The organ is in, Christine McVie's organ is in, just playing these nice kind of held pads underneath and sort of in the back of the mix. Over on the right is the electric guitar, just sort of playing kind of power chords, and over on the left, the acoustic guitar is strumming, and that's pretty much it in terms of the instrument. 
instruments. They fit together in this really heavy, really dramatic way that is distinct to this song and works beautifully. So that's just my recreation. Let's listen back to the original and try to hear all of those parts, especially try to hear that tambourine, the way it's tying everything together. Try to hear the organ in the back underneath the vocals, which we're going to talk about in a second. All of those instruments are creating this really distinct, cool groove. Ears on. Let's listen. On top of that ferocious instrumental foundation, the vocals are doing some interesting stuff that really makes this chorus sound good. So they start in unison and then they split. The vocals split into two-part harmony, but it sounds cool because, to my ear anyways, I think this is Lindsay Buckingham goes up to the higher part while Stevie Nicks is most prominent down on the lower part. They're both pretty high notes, but it's a much higher note for Lindsay Buckingham, a man to hit, than Stevie Nicks's note is for her to hit, which gives him this more powerful sound on that higher note when they split into harmony. Then they go back into unison, but they start using echoing, which is super cool. And then at the very end, there's this beautiful overdubbed descending line with a bunch of reverb on it. That's like my favorite thing in the entire song. So let's go through those one by one. First, they start in total unison, all voices on the same notes. So total unison there, definitely defined by Lindsey Buckingham's voice because he's just up on that, yet if you don't love me now, like he's singing really high because that's an E to a G to an A, which are pretty high notes for a guy to sing. I mean, that's way up there in the belt. So he's going to be just projecting a lot more loudly. On the next phrase, they split into harmony and Buckingham jumps up to a high B while Stevie Nicks actually just goes to a G. And the other two singers, I think are in there somewhere too, but those are the two voices that I hear pretty distinctly. So I'm kind of just describing these two parts in terms of it being Buckingham and Nick's. So the high part goes up to a B like this, and the lower part just goes to a G like this. Together they sound like this. See if you can hear it. So after that brief detour into harmony, they go back to unison for the lyric, you would never break the chain, but then they add an echo, never break the chain, that Stevie Nicks leads after that phrase, and that's where the first echo happens. So now that the echo has been introduced on the second phrase where they sang in unison the first time, now it's still unison, but they've displaced it, so there's an echo that makes it more intense than the first time they sang this phrase. So, so far, it's all been a lot of really effective arranging of voices that pretty much could be done live. You know, it's just a matter of singing in unison, then singing in harmony, then splitting and singing echoes. The final thing that they do is when they go into harmony the second time through, and they have this really cool descending overdubbed line come in. Still, 
That is some killer vocal arranging. Man, that chorus is so well put together. Starting in unison, going to harmony, going back to unison, adding an echo, and then when they go to harmony on that last phrase, this impossible part comes in. We've kind of, you know, we're hearing things that we could be hearing live up until then, and then this magical ethereal voice drenched in reverb comes in in the back and transports the entire thing to a slightly different plane to end the chorus. There's a lot more going on there, and it's a lot more deliberately constructed than I thought going into this song, and I'm really in love with the vocal arrangement on this chorus. So let's listen back to the entire chorus and just pay attention for all of that. Follow that little narrative of the vocal arrangement as it moves through all of those different modes, culminating with those magical backup vocals coming in seemingly from another world. All right, let's listen. that is good. So good, in fact, that we might as well go all the way back to the beginning and do the entire thing all over again. One thing that I really love going into that second verse is that Mick Fleetwood does this hi-hat hit. It's so dramatic. He does this big hi-hat hit to line up with the way that Buckingham slaps his strings to leave that space right before the phrase begins. And it kind of, it, it was already dramatic when Buckingham was doing it on guitar. So adding a hi-hat hit to that just makes it even more intense. <laughs> So the arrangement on this second verse is pretty much the same as the first one. The lyrics are different, but the arrangements are just about the same, with some nice additions. Like that. But generally speaking, about the same. One big difference is that they sing three phrases instead of two phrases, which is actually true on the chorus as well. The second time through, they just add 50%. Break the And before you know it, it's time for the second chorus. So they sing three times through the phrase on the chorus. The second and third phrases are basically identical. There's a little bit more business going on in the electric guitar on that third phrase. But it's basically just building up to the ending, or at least what sounds like the ending. Of course, it is not the ending. This song still has a kind of a coda. It has a little bit more to give. Before that, I like what the guitars are playing during this little interlude. It's kind of just this E pedal, but then it'll go up to a C, an F sharp, and an E. Those are kind of the three most prominent notes in the phrase played on the guitars. And that's this kind of C Lydian sound, which in the context of E minor is a really nice sound. Lydian, a mode of the major scale that has a sharp four. So that's that C and that F sharp, which is a tritone and gives it that jangly dissonance.
that's a really cool sound. It kind of lends itself to the acoustic guitar. I'll hear it a lot in kind of folk music and Americana. It actually always makes me think of the theme from the HBO show Deadwood. You kind of hear what I'm talking about? It's that super fast acoustic guitar riff. It's just got that kind of Lydian E sharp five. We're up a step here, we're in D, but it's the same basic idea. the kind of riff that really lends itself to the guitar, so it's not a surprise that Buckingham kind of found that sound here, but I like how Fleetwood Mac uses it. Also, man, Deadwood, that was a good show. That show had good music. One of these days I should do an episode just talking about HBO theme songs. That'd be fun. So back to the chain. This whole section just serves to kind of tell the listener, the song isn't over. In fact, we're kind of going somewhere. And bassist John McVie is going to take us there. It's a simple bass line, still an E, but the time has doubled as Mick Fleetwood's snare drumming sets up Lindsey Buckingham's double-time outro guitar solo. This outro rocks. There's not a whole lot of analysis to be done on it because it's very straightforward. I mean, the bass part, it just starts on this A, then it walks down to E. The drum groove is just a really straightforward rock groove up on the ride cymbal. And the guitar solo is actually even pretty simple too. It's kind of just like octaves on an E. So it's all just kind of a driving jam. Eventually the tambourine doubles up and the vocals come in to sing the whole thing home. It's a cool choice to bring up the tempo and the intensity on a song that was such a slow stomping burn up until now. It definitely makes it a great live song, and that's one of the reasons that Fleetwood Mac typically begins their shows with this song. And that's The Chain. It's such a killer tune, and it's the result of a lot of different ideas from a lot of different members of the band. It was sort of cut together, literally cut together. It would cut tape and stick the tape onto other tape to make the whole thing hold together, and it's unusual in that respect. A lot of other Fleetwood Mac songs would be brought in by one member of the band or another, and that is certainly true of the second song that we're going to be talking about on this episode. Dreams is the second song on Rumors. It was written by Stevie Nicks, but the whole band played a part in making this very simple song into something deceptively complex, yet straightforwardly magic. Just taken at face value, Dreams will be one of the most harmonically simple songs we've talked about on Strong Songs, though, like I said, there are some layers under the surface there, and this song has some uh, hidden complexity to it that we will also get into. Stevie Nicks wrote it in her telling extremely quickly. She just sat down at a piano and just kind of the song came out, which I've written songs like that. I think that anybody who writes songs has had songs where it works that way. It almost feels like you discovered something that was already there. You can hear it in the song because 
because the basic bones of the song are very simple. It just moves between two bass notes. And while there is some implied harmony over those two bass notes that goes beyond just an F and a G, it's still really just kind of two chords. And the song just kind of rolls along on the strength of this undeniable groove that they build from the very first note. Man, I mean, it's just an electric piano, bass, drums, and electric guitar, but no song sounds like that. I mean, you hear one second of that song, and you're immediately in this different headspace. It's an incredible trick, and not many songs pull it off to the extent that Dreams does. So let's just start by building that groove. We're in the key of C major or A minor, but the whole song really just moves between an F and a G in the bass. And while there are times where A minor is implied and times where C major is implied, a really beautiful time on the chorus, it's really kind of just going back and forth between a four and a five in the key of C. So if C is one, then F is the four and G is the five. And those three chords, the one, the four, and the five, are the three most common chords in popular music. I mean, those chords are the root of the blues, the one, the four, and the five. That's like all you need to play a blues. But usually you start on the one, and you know you sit on the one for a little while, and then maybe you go to the four, and then the five, and then the one. The four and the five both lead toward the one, so the one is kind of where you usually end up, at least where a lot of pop songs end up. Dreams doesn't really ever go to the one, at least not in the bass. It just goes back and forth between the four and the five, which gives it this relentless kind of pacing, unresolved quality. It couldn't really be a simpler groove. There are a million songs that have a drum pattern like this. I mean, the thump and the pop and the sizzle are clearer than they have ever been on what Mick Fleetwood is playing on Dreams. McVie's bass part is similarly very simple. I mean, he's just playing downbeats from F to G with occasional extra notes in between. Though the way that it's mixed is interesting. I think the bass sounds fantastic on this track. It's just so big and pillowy. It kind of holds up the whole thing. The drums are really dry too, which is a pretty common thing in 1970s rock albums. I really like this sound. There's just not a lot of ring or decay on the snare drum or the kick. It's just boom, boom, and it cuts right off. There's not a lot of reverb or room sound in there, and it makes the drums sound kind of small and very tight, which provides a nice contrast with the bass. One last thing about this groove that I like, this song is such a heartbeat. Stevie Nicks even puts it in the lyrics. It has this heartbeat feel to it, and that is exemplified by what McVie is playing in the bass. He's not just playing boom, boom, boom. He's playing boom, and it has that heartbeat feeling behind it and that is what defines the pulse of this song and makes it feel so organic and almost alive Christine McVie's electric piano part has that same kind of heartbeat feeling which complements the bass nicely It's a really good foundation, and it's central to what makes the song sound so good. On top of that foundation, there are two crucial main ingredients. 
The most obvious one is Stevie Nicks' voice, which is incredible. The other one is Lindsey Buckingham's guitar, which is really cool, and I would argue an equally definitive aspect of this song's sound. using a very specific combination of effects. To my ear, there's some kind of delay and some kind of reverb on there. He's also got some sort of envelope filter going on that's giving it that kind of like it's it's doing a filter on his EQ. It's similar to what a wah-wah pedal does, but I think it's some sort of an envelope pedal that's doing it automatically. And then he's getting this really cool volume effect. I talked about volume pedals in the intro. I have a volume pedal. I don't have maybe what he's using. It sounds like he's using something, again, that's sort of triggered automatically instead of a pedal, but he might also be using a volume pedal, and that's the reason that his guitar notes don't have an attack. They kind of sneak in. Each one comes in as this, you know, soft guitar sound with no attack. It's a remarkable and distinct sound that beautifully sits on top of that heartbeat groove to establish the song's vibe. And with that vibe established, it's time for Stevie to sing. Now here you go again, you say you want your freedom. Well, who am I to keep you down? Here's the thing about this song. I mentioned that Rumors was recorded during a tumultuous time for Fleetwood Mac, which is a bit of an understatement. Christine and John McVie were in the midst of a divorce while they were recording this album. Mick Fleetwood was in the midst of a divorce too. And Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham, who had also been romantically involved, were also splitting up. This song is about that, the end of a love affair between the two defining sounds on the song, Lindsay Buckingham's beautiful guitar and Stevie Nicks' beautiful vocals. I don't usually get too into the story behind these songs as they were written, and there's more there with rumors too. I mean, Lindsay Buckingham wrote Go Your Own Way, which is also about the same relationship, so it's kind of this other perspective, you know, his perspective on the relationship. But I think there's something special about Dreams, and that's because Buckingham and Nicks both play such important parts in the recording. It has to have informed the way that this song was performed. Buckingham's guitar and Nix's vocals perform this steady, resigned duet. It's so sad, but it's also so real. There's just something real there. You feel it when she sings it. You feel the way that she feels. It's the way that her voice slightly breaks on notes. It's the way they're feeling the groove. It's something undefinable. That's the thing about bands. For good and for ill, a group of us just amplifies the way that we feel, and a band can take one person's feelings, or in this case, multiple people's feelings, and turn it into something bigger. Something undefinable and beautiful and true.
Back to the songwriting. That high B just totally knocks me out when Stevie goes up there. It's a really unexpected place for the melody to go. A B over F is the tritone, but it's really kind of moving up to the G, which would make it the third. Again, that's that kind of Lydian sound, that sharp four, and it's just this beautiful, suspended, slightly dissonant note. This melody is so cool. It would be pretty unremarkable if this song spent more time in the key of C, or any time in the key of C. There's a lot of E's in there, which is just the third in the key of C, but once you've got an F in the bass, suddenly it's a major seventh, which is a much richer and, yes, more lush-sounding interval. So the underlying harmony may not change from those two chords, but Dream still has sections. After the verse comes the pre-chorus. A couple of neat things are happening on that pre-chorus. It's the same two chords, but it is a new section. It's pretty clearly marked that way because they introduce these new elements to the song. Most obvious are the two-part backup vocals that come in over on the left. And it's this nice counter melody that moves up, and it kind of keeps moving up. It starts, it's moving in parallel with that bass line that goes up and then back down, but then it keeps moving up one step when the bass line goes down, which creates a nice sense of moving together and then tearing apart. I also like this style of backup vocal, the way that it works lyrically. The main lyrics are, like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had. And the backup vocal is just the words heartbeat and stillness that kind of matches up with when she sings those in the main lyric. It's really cool. This song has such a heartbeat feel to it. Like I said, that bass line, gong, gong, the lyric heartbeat, the backup vocal singing heartbeat. And then, just to emphasize it a little bit further, Mick Fleetwood does these nice four hits on the toms. Boom, boom, right there on two and four as Stevie Nicks sings the word heartbeat. One other thing that Fleetwood has added to this section that I really like is a whole new instrument, and that is the vibraphone. It's over in the right, and I think they've put a delay on it so that it ping-pongs from right to left every time he hits it. And he's moving in just in thirds, sort of ascending in a line that lines up with the backup vocals, though it's obviously in a different place timbrely. Buckingham, meanwhile, has just sort of moved to these nice guitar arpeggios. He's kind of pulled back a little bit. He's not so much playing a lead part anymore. He's just part of the texture of this pre-chorus, which, again, just changes the sound a little bit from how it sounded during the verse. Okay, so let's listen to that pre-chorus again and try to keep an ear open for all of that. Listen for how Nix's lead vocals and backup vocals interplay with one another lyrically, how the backup vocal keeps moving up even while the harmony moves back down. Listen for that vibraphone over in the right that's moving along with the backup vocals. Listen to how Buckingham's guitar has pulled a little bit back and is just playing nice arpeggios. And also listen for those heartbeats that Fleetwood adds on the toms just to emphasize that lyric. All right, let's listen. Now listen to the beautiful way they transition into the chorus. Oh 
man, what a smooth transition. That is a really, really nice transition into the chorus. A few things are making it really work. The key to this transition is that everything carries over the bar line into the chorus. So it's a very smooth transition. It's not harsh in any way, and there isn't a really strict division right on one, which is what makes this just kind of, you kind of just slide into the chorus and then it expands before you. It's like a blooming feeling. So to get that effect, they're doing a few things. First of all, there's that new backup vocal part that comes in. It's just this nice, pure high G. Kind of rings out and carries over the bar line into the chorus. So that's up on top, and it's just kind of this nice, smooth frosting on top of everything else. There's also the guitar. Buckingham switches to acoustic guitar and begins just strumming an acoustic guitar pattern right on the downbeat. And that is right on the downbeat. That's a significant change right there, but it's kind of obfuscated by what Fleetwood is playing on the drums. And this fill that he plays and this hit that he plays, I think it's one of those little things that actually plays a really big role in the sound of this song and the feel of it. And it's that he plays a fill over the bar line and hits the crash symbol on two. So he's playing a regular feel, boomed, popped, boomed, pop, and instead of playing a boom to get a dot to bam right onto one, he plays this offset hit on two. Boomed, popped, boomed, da, boom, boom, bah. Playing a displaced hit like that, I really love whenever drummers do that. I love a big hit on two, and this song has a lot of them. In fact, it begins with one, and I think that one of the reasons the groove lands and feels so smooth and just pulls you in immediately is because Fleetwood starts with a hit on two. It's one of those small instrumental musical decisions that makes a much bigger impact than you would think. That's kind of my favorite sort of thing. And I'm sure there are people who've listened to Dreams a thousand times and never thought about the fact that Mick Fleetwood displaces so many of his crash hits to two. I never thought about it until I analyzed the song for this episode, but I think that it's something you notice even if you don't consciously notice it. just carries you into the chorus. It gives it that sort of lift as the chorus takes off and those backup vocals come in singing a chorus that's so memorable that I think a lot of people, when it gets to this section, they think, oh, okay, it's this song. So on this chorus, as you've probably noticed, yet again, the bass is still just going back and forth between that F and that G, yet the chorus really sounds like its own thing. It sounds like we've arrived somewhere pretty new, and that's for a few different reasons. Really just two, the instrumental arrangement and the vocal arrangement. So like I mentioned, they've just added a few instruments here. Buckingham is overdubbing some acoustic guitar over on the left, though he also keeps playing electric guitar with some really nice big volume swells, just sort of chords just swelling in on his electric guitar. Man, his guitar tone on this song is so good. So the bass, the drums, basically the same. The electric piano is still in, but there's another keyboard part that's another one of those small things that I think is actually really important to the overall sound of this song. It's way up on top, and it's an electric piano. It sounds to me kind of like a Yamaha DX7, which I don't believe existed when this album was recorded. That came out in the early 1980s, so it's not a DX7. I'm not totally sure what it is, but it starts on this very high A, and it kind of walks up like this. 
And then as it holds that high E, it adds a D right below it and leaves that whole step, which is a little bit dissonant, just sort of ringing out. It's really clear above the mix and it adds just this certain something to the sound of this chorus. It's gorgeous. See if you can hear it here at the beginning of the chorus and I'll play along to help you hear it. a few notes, not a difficult part to play, but it adds so much to the sound and vibe of this chorus. Of course, the singing is the main event. The singing and these vocal harmonies on the chorus are what make dreams dreams. It's certainly what makes the chorus to dreams sound the way that it does. And I think there's something interesting going on with the vocal harmonies on this chorus. They're really traditional, really nicely arranged, but they're striving for a resolution that the rest of the song, that the rhythm section and the other instruments aren't willing to provide. So there's actually kind of this tension between the vocals and the rest of the band. So this song is in C basically, but it's really just going back and forth between an F and a G. That's the four and the five. And it has that unresolved quality because it just goes F to G to F to G. The bass never really moves from there and the chords kind of don't either. It never really resolves to C major. Except on this chorus in the final phrase, the vocals kind of do resolve to C major, even though the rest of the band doesn't go there with them. So there's three vocal parts going on there. It's another three-part harmony thing, just like at the beginning of the chain. And it really clearly actually kind of outlines a chord progression from F to G resolving to C. So I went and recreated this vocal arrangement. I can't sing Stevie Nicks' vocal register like she does, so it sounds kind of different. But the notes are what matters, so listen for the harmony and just the vocal harmony. I'm going to sing this with no accompaniment and just try to listen for what's going on harmonically in the voices. Thunder on the when it's raining Players only love you when they're playing Now did you hear that walk down at the end of that second phrase? That is a resolution to C major if ever I heard one. This is the end of the phrase when they're playing The bottom voice goes like this The middle voice goes like this and the top voice goes like this. Those last two notes are F to E, and nothing says resolving to C major like an F ending on an E. So when you hear all three of those voices together on the piano, it sounds like this. When they're playing. So just a cappella, it's a really straightforward resolution to C major. Thing is, the band just keeps playing F to G underneath them. So they're resolving to C major kind of over this bass line and this chord progression that's just still going from F to G. So the band doesn't resolve to C, but the singers do, which gives it this feeling of a resolution on top of an unresolved chord progression. It's actually kind of not like something I've heard before. It's pretty cool. This is what my version of it sounds like with just me accompanying myself on piano just playing the chords that the band is playing, that F to G. Thunder only happens when it's raining Players only love you when they're playing 
So if you've ever learned this song and thought, oh, it's just an F and a G, it's kind of not really. There's also that C, and I would say that actually that resolution to C is really an important part of the song. You couldn't even really do this without all three vocal harmony parts in, because you need all three parts to clearly imply that C major chord, which is that odd resolution floating above the band. If you sang this solo, it just wouldn't quite have that same sound to it, unless you put a C major chord you know, into the piano or guitar or whatever you were playing, but that would kind of defeat the point since the cool sound they're getting is specifically because the vocals and the instruments are doing just slightly different things. They're not dissonant exactly, they're just kind of in two different places just for a minute, and it creates this very special sound. Okay, so let's listen back to that entire chorus, and I want you to keep your ears open for everything we just talked about. Listen for the acoustic guitar over on the left, along with those electric guitar volume swells that fill things out. Listen for that high electric piano just playing that slowly ascending note those nice just sort of crystalline notes up above the mix and more than anything listen to the vocals and pay attention for that moment at the end of each phrase when they resolve to a c major chord despite the fact that the rest of the band keeps playing an f to a g all right let's listen Buckingham's guitar solo here is nice. It's really nice as a bass showcase. It's the only place in the song where McVie puts away that heartbeat groove and opens up a little bit. From here, much like with the chain, the song stays largely the same the second time through. The arrangement doesn't change a whole lot. There are some really nice flourishes here and there, though. Like what McPhee does on the bass right here. But that's really kind of it. My work here is almost done. After Stevie asks us if we have any dreams we'd like to sell, the band does the same nice build through the pre-chorus and plays into the chorus much the same way they did the first time. Of course, it's just as good the second time through. And then they just repeat the phrase out. Fleetwood sets up one more delayed crash hit, and we wake up from the dream. And that final chord, that final harmony, is deliciously unresolved. That's another Lydian sound. That's an F with a sharp 4 and a major 7th, an undeniably Lydian sound. And Lydian is usually thought of as a bright and optimistic sound, but it can be dark and unresolved like it is here. It's a fitting ending for a song that embraces that lack of resolution, to the point that even when the harmony finally resolves, it doesn't actually resolve. Like any great band, Fleetwood Mac was more than any one member. 
and rumors contains that certain collective ephemeral brilliance on every track. From the post-production collaboration of The Chain to the deceptive complexity of Dreams, every song is what it is because the group made it that way. And just as they changed the music, they changed one another. Five people lived their lives together, bouncing off of one another in beautiful and painful ways. And together, they made art that no one of them could have made alone. And that'll do it for my analysis of The Chain and Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Thanks for listening. This was a really fun episode to make, and I hope you all liked it. As always, you can send feedback, requests, music recommendations, or anything else to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. My links are down in the show notes. I also have a newsletter. Did you know I have a newsletter? Well, I do. I recently moved to a new platform. So if you want infrequent emails from me with music recommendations, thoughts on strong songs, and other things, you can find the link where else but down in the show notes. Thank you so much to all of the patrons patrons who make this show possible, you can find out more about how to support me making strong songs at patreon.com slash strong songs. This episode's outro solos is the one and only Portland trombonist Kyle Molitor, who actually has a new single coming out. So stick around for Kyle, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song.